already a great morning. And uh, as some of you already know, if you've looked in your bulletin or you've listened to the podcast that we put out this last week, you'd know that we're doing something a little bit different. This Sunday, we're going to not be in the Gospel of Mark because today is October 31st. And if I were to ask you, what holiday is today? You might say, you might say it's Halloween, of course, which would be a modern way of referring to All Hallows Eve. That's what you meant, of course, when you said Halloween, right? It's All Hallows Eve. The night before All Saints Day, November 1st, which was celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church for many, many centuries, November 1st, the day that you honor all the saints in the church, the night before, All Hallows' Eve. Is that what you were thinking about when you saw Halloween? Or maybe it was costumes, trick-or-treating, and some candy tonight. And some of you, maybe you were not thinking of Halloween. No, 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 no. You know a little too much church history to be thinking of Halloween. You were thinking a little more Protestantly, if I can make up a word. And you said, oh, today's not Halloween. Today is Reformation Day. Today is Reformation Day. I'm not identifying this day with All Hallows' Eve. No, I'm not identifying with all those jack-o'-lanterns and costumes and candy. I'm identifying this day with the day two, or sorry, not two, 504 years ago, October 31st, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and didn't know it, but started what we call the Protestant Reformation. That's what you're thinking about today. And maybe you're going to spend some time dressing up as Martin Luther with a little monk and get a mallet and go around and knock people's doors that way. I don't know. Some way to get candy, regardless. You've got to get the candy. I thought it would be good, because it is October 31st, to spend a little time talking about our family heritage. In other words, uh, you should know, I think you probably do know, that Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga is a Protestant Church. It is a Protestant church that traces its root back with all other Protestant churches to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. To talk about the Reformation then is a part of our family heritage. There are, of course, after the Reformation, after 1517 and what happened there, there are many different branches and offshoots of Protestantism. But it is important for us to know a little bit of the family history and more importantly, to know what God did in this amazing time of the church. Particularly, I think it's incredibly important to understand what happened there because it helps us understand certain doctrinal truths that the Bible has been teaching, that the Bible presents to us. And often, if we only understand our own, our own current context and we don't really understand the, the history of the battlegrounds, the theological battles that took place, we don't appreciate our inheritance, our doctrinal inheritance, our scriptural inheritance. We don't, we don't always appreciate them if we don't fully understand what was being taught at the time, how we came to understand the gospel in a fresh way after it was somewhat buried for several hundred years 
So we're going to, this morning, do something a little bit unusual. We have two goals. And number one goal, of course, is the goal of every sermon, is to make a passage of Scripture clear. That's the number one goal, to make a passage of Scripture clear. And I'm actually going to look at Galatians 2. So if you've got your Bible, you can start turning to Galatians 2. We're going to look at that text, verses 15 and 16. But what will be unique and perhaps unusual, something you're not quite used to about this sermon, is that we're going to use a lot of history to uh, shed some light on why the truths found in this passage are so important. Uh, We want to do a little background. We want to get a little history. So there will be a lot more history than usual, but hopefully the history will illustrate and highlight and emphasize the value of the discoveries of the Reformation, the discoveries that are rooted in Scripture, And in so doing, you'll have a better doctrinal understanding of what the Word of God teaches and also a little bit of a deeper understanding of our family inheritance as a Protestant church. The passage that I want to just start reading that you're you're open to at this point, we're not going to exegete it just yet. We're going to get to it later because I want to set the backdrop first. But verse 15, it reads this way, 15 and 16. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ or in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified by works of the law. This truth that justification, a right standing before God, this truth that it is through faith and faith alone that we are justified was buried, obscured, you might even use the word lost for hundreds of years, prior to the Reformation, prior to what happened in 1517 in the following years. And what happened in the Reformation was a recovery of many things, but one of the foremost things was the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. And so what we're going to do to begin is to rewind all the way back in time, and I want to divide this morning's sermon into four parts to help you follow along. First, we're going to look at the times. We're going to get in our time machine and rewind and go back to prior to the Reformation, prior to the Reformation and prior to Martin Luther and when the Roman Catholic Church dominated the Western world. We're going to look at those times, and then we're going to look at the man, Martin Luther, what he went through and what he discovered, and that'll bring us to the third point, the discovery. The discovery of this all-important doctrine of justification, and then we'll conclude with the confrontation. What his discovery led to and how Martin Luther ended his life clinging to the truths he discovered. Let's start with the times. Let's do a little history. Let's jump into our time machine, and let's rewind back to those days before the Wittenberg door was graced by those 95 theses. 
And we have to understand several things. Many of us, when you think about the dark ages, you think about the medieval times, you think about certain things. Maybe your mind goes to the old architectural designs, gargoyles perched upon the supports of the building above, looking at you as you walked by the castle gates. Maybe you think of knights and crusades. Maybe you think of superstitions, witch hunts, things of that nature. There certainly was a lot of darkness. William Manchester, a historian of the time, wrote a book called A World Lit Only by Fire, describing that era. Literally, obviously, we know there was no electricity. Any kind of light that you had had to be a torch or a candle. It was, in fact, quite literally a darker time, but it was not darker merely because they had not invented electricity yet. It was darkened for many other spiritual reasons. We have to talk about the Roman Catholic Church to understand exactly what's going on at this time. So we're going to look at some features of the system that was set up and in place and that was recognized as the authority. First of all, the Pope. Uh, As many of us, even this morning, we were talking about in our course seminar, the Pope was understood to be the vicar of Christ. The vicar of Christ, that is, that he was Christ's very representative on earth. That the Pope was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, per Matthew 16. It was a misunderstanding of the Matthew 16 passage where Jesus says to Peter that on this rock I'll build my church, and he hands him the keys of the kingdom, figuratively speaking. It was then understood the Pope, or the the Bishop of Rome, what Peter was, had this certain special authority given to him by Jesus himself, and that Peter was able to, and was in charge of, having authority over the whole church. If you ever look at old Roman Catholic paintings or sculptures of Peter, if you look closely enough, you'll see he's carrying a set of keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He was the authority. And this leads to the second major problem that came out, uh, what was occurring during this time, was that Scripture was not seen as the highest authority. Because the Pope and the church itself was the highest authority God's word was pushed underneath that, and the church actually at that point did not want anyone else to read or study the Bible because there was a fear that they might interpret it differently than what the pope and the priests and the bishops were interpreting it, and it might cause division. And so they actually guarded people from reading the Bible. They did not want people to read the Bible, and if you read church history, there are people who thought... The Bible should be translated into the languages of people, and those people, some of them, were even burnt at the stake for suggesting such things. Now, Scripture was then set aside. It was not the highest authority. Rather, the Pope and the church itself was, and it was seen like this. Think of it this way. It was the Pope there at the top. The Pope appointed bishops who were overseeing priests, and the priests would oversee certain churches and gatherings, and it was the priests who then administered sacraments. And the head, it was seen like a fountain almost. The the popes are at the head overflowing his fountain of grace to the bishops. The bishops overflow to the priests. And the priests through the sacraments were blessing whoever came to the mass, whoever was participating in the life of the church. It was as if the pope and the bishops and the priests had the ability to turn on the faucets of grace or turn on the, off the faucets of grace. And the faucets of grace were essentially the sacraments, seven of them. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. 
And if you were to be a faithful believer at that time, you would have to go to church to be a part of the grace of God. That was the only way to be a part of it was to receive it being poured out through the Pope, through the bishops, down to the peace, and in the sacraments. And it was understood that you could receive grace even if you didn't understand what was happening, even if you didn't make mental assent, even if you didn't have personal faith, the sheer presence and participation in those things, grace was given to you. You could think of it like this. Every person had their grace tank. And if you went to the church, if you went to mass, if you participated in the sacraments and you got confirmed and you did all these things, your grace tank could be filled higher and higher. And the more grace you had, the more righteousness you could accrue in your life. And if you had enough righteousness, then maybe you'll be able to get to heaven. Or maybe you'll just have less time in purgatory. The center of these sacraments that were meant to dispense grace, of course, was the Eucharist. If you were to walk into a Roman Catholic church, there wouldn't be a pulpit in the center. There would be an altar. And there at the altar, it was believed that every gathering, Jesus was re-sacrificed again. It was taught that the body and blood, whereas we'll have here and we'll participate in later on, it was taught there the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the bread turned into the literal body of Christ and the wine turned into the literal blood of Christ. Jesus was re-sacrificed afresh for your sins so that you could have some atonement, fresh atonement. In other words, it was never understood that the atonement was full, final, and complete. You had to do it again and again and again, week in, week out, always hoping that you would get enough merit, your grace tank would be full, your righteousness would be enough, Christ's death again and again and again for your sins would enable you to get out of hell or get out of purgatory, but you were never quite sure. Now, just as a point to highlight some of the ignorance of what was going on at this point was that all of this, all of the gatherings of the mass, excuse me, were done in Latin. Latin was not a language that people spoke at the time. It was the language of the educated elite, and that's it. And so when a priest got up and spoke in Latin, no one understood what was being said. Again, as I indicated before, you got the grace simply by showing up, not necessarily by having personal faith and understanding. And so the priest would get up, he would say things in Latin, the people would think that they're getting the taps of grace opened up and poured out upon them, and they would think that they then are filling up their grace tank, they're getting more righteousness, And they're going to be able to stand before God. The interesting, actually, I think this is kind of funny. Some of you guys have already heard this one. The the priests themselves actually didn't know Latin quite well either. And so they would stand up and they'd say things and they didn't really get it all right. And the people didn't know any better. So they didn't know if it was being said right. And so what would happen is as they stood up there, they would declare, this is my body. And they would say so in Latin. And how it sounded in Latin was like this, hoc est corpus meum. In Latin, that means, this is my body. But they didn't know Latin that well, and so they'd sometimes miff it, and they would say it a little bit wrong, and they ended up saying it, hoc est, hoc est, hocus, hocus. And the people listening didn't know any better, and all of a sudden, the, the body was poof, transformed into the body of Christ. The, the wine was poof, transformed into the blood of Christ, all by this hocus-pocus act of the priest up front, 
That's where we get hocus pocus from today. It was the idea that, and it actually speaks to the superstitions of the day, there wasn't any mental understanding of what actually was happening in the, in the Eucharist. They didn't have a theology of the Eucharist. All they knew was that someone stood up, said some magic words, and it magically turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus. They were thinking that sheerly by their participation in the sacraments that God was pouring out grace upon them. They didn't understand quite how it worked. They just participated. Now, I already mentioned the idea of purgatory. You have to understand the nature of purgatory to understand how the entire system worked. So they believed that if you had enough grace, your grace tank would be full, and you would maybe have enough merit, enough righteousness that you could go to heaven. But what about that person who's trusting in Christ, but they're struggling? You know, they don't do all that great. They're not all that pious. They don't always show up and participate in the Eucharist. Well, you didn't necessarily have to go to hell, but you would still have to atone for your sins. Why? Because the atonement of Christ wasn't all that complete. And so what would happen is they believed in purgatory. And purgatory was where you would go if you didn't quite make enough to go to heaven and you, didn't quite, you weren't quite bad enough to go to hell, you'd go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you'd be purged for your sins hundreds of years, perhaps thousands, maybe even millions of years before you would arrive in heaven. So there was no assurance at all that if you died in the night that you would go to heaven, even if you were trusting in Jesus because you may not have enough merit, you may not have enough righteousness to stand before God complete. Rather, you would probably have to go spend thousands of years in purgatory before you could ever get to heaven. Well, what the things the Roman Catholic Church did in an effort to help their people understand these things and understand more of what they were teaching is they introduced the idea of confession in 1215 in the Fourth Lateran Council, that all Christians, they declared, must go confess their sins to a priest. You know, they did this in an effort to teach their people that their sins could be absolved in some way. Of course, it wasn't the way we understand absolution, but they taught them that they could. Of course, they said it this way, that if you don't go and get your sins or you confess your sins, then you are guilty and you will face eternal damnation. So it created even more fear and terror in the hearts and minds of anyone trying to be faithful. And they would show up to the confessional, the priest would be on the other side, and the priest would ask questions like this, are your prayers, alms, and activities done more to hide your sins and impress others? Or is it to please God? Or they'd ask questions like this, have you muttered against God because of bad weather? because of illness or poverty or the death of a child or of a friend. And the priest would ask these questions and it would send the people on this kind of morbid search, introspection, looking inside to see if there's anything they'd done, if there's any more that they could confess. And they would constantly be confessing, but the questions would come up and the priests would ask them and they never felt they had done enough. They had never felt they had confessed enough. They had never felt they could know that they'd done enough. The questions would only spur them on further to this kind of introspection that made them never fully able to rest in Christ. A side result of all this was that Jesus became became, uh, different in the minds of these people. Rather than seeing him as this all-sufficient, merciful, and kind Savior, Jesus was increasingly seen as this all-holy, all-terrible judge who searches your hearts, who's looking for every last sin you've committed, and if you don't confess it, if you don't deal with it, you're going to have to face judgment. 
In fact, in the place where Luther lived in Wittenberg, there was a stone relief carving of Jesus seated on a rainbow uh, about to judge the world. He was so angry that veins were bulging out of his forehead. That was how Jesus was understood. Here's another thing. What about those people that are really good? What about those people that do everything? They're part of the church and they participate in the mass and they, they do all their confessions and they do everything they possibly can. Well, that would mean your merit, you would have enough merit. You know, you got your grace tank so full, you got all this extra merit, you would have extra merit. Extra merit. And those people who died were called saints. And those people, when they went to heaven, they would basically collect all their extra merit, put it in a play, almost think of it like a bank account, a treasury of merit, and there'd be all this extra merit that people could have if they asked for it. But how did you get it? Not by coming to Christ, you had to come to the saints. There's all this extra merit sitting around in heaven, but the only way you could get it, you wouldn't want to talk to Jesus. He's a terrible doomsday judge. You would rather want to talk to the saints. You would pray to the saints. You would do penance. You would do good works in the name of saints so that the saints would dispense some of their merit to you so that you might be able to have enough to avoid hell, to have enough to lessen your time in purgatory, and perhaps even have enough to go straight to heaven when you die. And so you're always hoping you had enough merit. Now here's where it gets so corrupt. It already doctrinally is corrupt, but what happened is, is the Pope realized that there's money to be made in the system, that when you have people who are terrified of hell terrified of purgatory and believe that they can do something to gain more merit, uh, you actually have a recipe to make a lot of money if you're the Pope. And so what the Pope began to decree was that you could actually get merit given to you, this treasury of merit that the saints had given. The Pope had the authority to basically take merit out of that account and credit it to your account if, if you did the right thing. And so he would, if he wanted something to be done, he would basically say, hey, I'll give you a gift of merit if you do the thing I want you to do. I, I, if, I'll give you a merit. I'll give you a merit if you go fight in the first crusade for me. And that's what he did. He offered anyone who would go fight in the first crusade a full plenary indulgence. This is what they were called, indulgences. You get full, uh, it's like a get out of purgatory free card. If you fight in the first crusade, you will not have to worry about purgatory. And so people would go willing to fight because it meant thousands, maybe millions of years cut off their suffering, and they'd go fight. But the other thing that these popes often wanted to do was to build astounding and beautiful and gigantic cathedrals. And how could they ever get the money for that? Guess what? We could start selling indulgences. You want to get a few hundred years knocked off your time in purgatory? Here's an indulgence for $9.99. Get you exactly what you want. So they would actually hire and and commission indulgence salesmen who would go from town to town, community to community, and they'd go announce that there are indulgences for sale, that if you pay this amount of money, you can actually purchase uh, some more merit, and you'll get a little less time off of your suffering or... And this might have been more compelling for some. You could choose to apply your merit to some other person that you love who's right now suffering in purgatory. Why would you not want to let them out of purgatory sooner? It was so corrupt. 
And this is the world that Martin Luther was born into. It was a world where God was silent, the Bible was closed, Christ was angry, grace was something you had to earn, righteousness was something you had to accrue, or it was something you could purchase if you were wealthy. No one ever knew if you, they had done enough. No one had assurance of salvation. Most were terrified of purgatory and the suffering that they would face when they died. There's a reason why it was called the Dark Ages. It was a dark time. Let's talk now about the man. This is the the world Martin Luther was born into. This is the world Martin Luther was raised in. This is the system he was actually a part of in the beginning of his life. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. He didn't want to be a lawyer. At least initially, he he began doing it because he wanted to please his father. But one day, as a 21-year-old, he's on a walk. A storm rolls in. Lightning strikes right next to him. He cries out, thinking he might die. And he cries out, St. Anne. That was the Luther family saint. St. Anne, help me. I shall become a monk. And he basically makes this commitment to become a monk because he's so afraid that he might die. In that moment, he thought if he died, he'd go to hell or he figured he'd probably suffer for a long time because he hadn't accrued that much merit in his life. And so he makes good on his promise. He goes to the monastery. And in that monastery, there's rules for everything. And Luther dives all the way in. He did everything he could do to try to merit himself up, to try to make sure that he had enough righteousness one funny story is that he would go to the priest to, to confess as he was supposed to, as the monks were con- supposed to, but he would confess for one hour and then the second hour would go by and third hour he would confess sometimes up to six hours in a day where the priest on the other side of the, the confessional would get so upset with him. Come on, g- give me something good. Like tell me you killed someone. Tell me you did something terrible. You're just, you're just confessing all these little sins of your mind or your attitude. In other words, Luther was so self-aware of all his sin that he never felt like he had confessed enough. And he knew that God was holy and hated sin, but he had no way to clean himself. He had no way to make himself feel forgiven. And so he constantly was trying and trying to do all he could to get rid of the stain of guilt he felt. One thing he thought he might do would be to travel to Rome. Rome was the center, right? Rome's where the Pope was. Rome was supposed to be this glorious city where Roman Catholicism was uh, beautiful and practiced in the right way. He went and he showed up and he realized it was corrupt. It was kind of gross and yet still engrossed in that system. He wanted to do everything he could to get as much merit as he could. So he found all the relics and he prayed to all the saints. And one of the things he did that was a turning point in his own mind was he went to what's called the Scala Sancta. Scala Sancta, 28 steps that the Roman Catholics had taught that this, these were the steps that Jesus climbed on his way to talk to Pilate, that they had been transferred from Jerusalem, they had been brought to Rome and rebuilt there. And people would come all over the world and they would climb those steps as a way to earn merit, because if you did that, you could earn all kinds of merit, and perhaps you wouldn't have to go to purgatory at all. 28 steps. You take a step, you get down on your knees, you kiss the step, you say the Lord's Prayer. You take another step, you start all over, you kiss the step, you say the Lord's Prayer, you do it all over 28 times, and there were pilgrims all around him doing this. They're crying out the Lord's Prayer. They're begging the Lord for mercy. They're going up the steps, and he does this, and he gets to the top, and a question comes into his mind, 
He says to himself, who knows if any of this is true? It was just this doubt, like a pebble in his shoe, that just began to bother him. How do I know that this is true? How do I know that this is going to free me from the tyranny of trying to earn my righteousness? But what began to set him off was when after he was visiting Rome and he came back and he just had this bad taste in his mouth, an indulgence salesman happens to show up in Wittenberg, his hometown. Johann Tetzel, who would come around and he would tell you that if you wanted to lower the years you had to pay in purgatory, or if you wanted to get your loved ones out of purgatory, you could buy an indulgence. And he would say things like this. He would get a crowd around him, and he was a very compelling teacher, and he would would say things like, Don't you hear the voices of your wailing parents? They're wailing in pain because they're in purgatory. They're suffering right now. And you can buy an indulgence and set them free. The most famous of his slogans was, When a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. In other words, throw your money in my little cup and I'll set a soul free from purgatory. This is something that began to mess with Luther. In fact, Michael Reeves, a historian who did a great, great story of the Reformation called The Unquenchable Flame. I recommend reading it if you're all all interested. He calls Luther God's volcano. And that was something that began to get Luther rumbling. It, It eventually set him off He was so infumed that people thought they could just buy their way out of hell or out of purgatory with cold, hard cash. He said, this whole indulgence system is is messed up. And so, on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 1517, he made a list of 95 problems. Listen, not with the whole Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't doing that yet simply with indulgences. And he took this long list, he brought it to the Wittenberg church door, which was actually a place where you normally posted things that you wanted to discuss. He posted them in Latin because he wanted it to be a dialogue among scholars. He did not intend to light a fire in Europe. He just wanted to present a case that the indulgences are wrong. He nailed it to the Wittenberg door and suddenly things began to change. Luther began to erupt. Here's what's interesting, though. Historically, for those of you who are interested in the historical timeline of things, Luther was not yet born again when he did that. In fact, Luther had not yet come to understand justification by faith yet. He had a problem with indulgences. It didn't feel right. It didn't seem right. He knew there was something wrong with it. He had 95 reasons why. But he had not. That would come two years later in 1519, and now we get to our third point. We've looked at the times. We've looked at the man. Now we're going to look at the discovery. Luther is studying Romans. Actually, you can go ahead and turn to Romans real quick. I want you to see this. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We read it this morning. Kent read it already. Luther is studying Romans in the original language. And there's a passage that just blows up his whole world. 
It's Romans 1.17. I want to look at it with you. And I want to help you understand what Luther thought it meant. And then the discovery that helped him understand what it actually means. It says in our English translations, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me explain how he understood the passage. Remember, you're growing up in a world, a whole system, that does not have justification by faith alone. It has justification by participation in the church, by participation in the sacraments, and to get enough grace, to get enough righteousness, to get enough merit, you can get maybe into heaven. That was their system. And he reads this, and this is how he understood it. The word righteousness, look at it in your Bible, in it the righteousness of God, in Greek is the same word for justice. So when you read Romans and you get that word justice and you get that word righteousness, Greek, it's the same word. So Luther thought that this was referring to the justice of God by which he punishes sinners. He thought that's what the righteousness that is being referred to here is the righteousness, the justice, which moves God to punish sin. So let me reread the verse with Luther's understanding, his original understanding. He thought it meant this, for in it, the gospel... The sin-punishing judgment of God is revealed from faith to faith. So here's what he's thinking. The gospel is an announcement of God's judgment. The gospel is an announcement that God is just, that he will punish all your sin. That's his understanding. And Luther, because he understood his own sin, he felt that God hated him, and then he grew to hate God after he had written the 95 Theses. He couldn't, what he could not understand is the last part of the verse. Look at it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That phrase drove him crazy. In fact, literally, people thought he was crazy. In fact, historians have sometimes said that Luther was insane. He was driven nearly mad trying to understand what it meant that the righteous shall live by faith. He would sit alone in Castle Church in Wittenberg in Germany, and he would meditate, and he would ponder, and he would wrestle with that single verse. What does it mean? The righteous shall live by faith. And as he wrestled, as he begged the Lord to reveal it to him, as he studied, as he studied, as he studied suddenly a light turned on. I'll let Luther tell you in his own words how it happened. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel. 
and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's, I was so mad with God because it seemed like this. It seemed like original sin condemned us. The, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God condemned us. And now here's the announcement of the gospel. And what does it do? It condemns us. And all we hear all through the revelation of God is condemnation, 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 judgment, judgment, judgment. And so he's angry at God. He hates God because he feels that God hates him. He goes on, thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. In other words, Scripture is like this, this, this unyielding uh, stone that he needs to chisel. He's beating upon it, beating upon it, hoping that it'll open to him and he'll find some diamonds on the inside. He's beating upon this verse upon Paul ardently, he says, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. What did he mean? The righteous shall live by faith. And at last, here's Luther still, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. And there, watch this, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he through he who through faith is righteous shall live. Let me clarify this. What he discovered was that the way that a sinner is justified is through faith. That the righteousness upon which you are justified is a gift given to you when you believe. Here's here's the key. Let me contrast it. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching that you could be justified by your own merit. If you participated in the church, the grace would flow in and you would gain merit. And if you got enough righteousness, you could stand before God. But then you might lose it if you sin. But then you might gain it if you go back to church. But then you might lose it and up and down and up and down. And there was no certainty that you ever had enough righteousness to stand before God. And Luther discovered what Romans 1.17 says is that the moment you have faith in Christ, God gives you his own righteousness. Watch this. His own righteousness, so that you're not doing this. He gives you Christ's perfect righteousness that cannot change, that will not increase or decrease or go up or go down. He gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ, which always and forever will be yours. Justified by faith, given righteousness by faith. And when he understood this, he writes, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It all clicked. Go back to Galatians 2. Do you just see this again in another passage? You are not justified by accruing righteousness for yourself through all your participation in the sacraments through all your obedience to the laws and the rituals of the system, 
but rather you are justified, made righteous, declared to be righteous when you believe the gospel. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's saying that we, the apostles, we're, we're Jews. We were born into a system of rules and the moral law. We were given uh, a status of being born into the people of God. We were born as Israelites. Philippians 3, he goes into much more detail about his own pedigree, why he should, if anyone, be worthy of having a righteousness of his own. He says, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Here's the first point. If, you're gonna, if we're going to execute this passage, we're going to break it up into two points, and they're going to be very simple. Point number one is good works cannot justify anyone. Good works cannot justify anyone. We know that a person is not justified by works, by their religious rituals, by their participation in the church, by their being baptized, by their confirmation, by anything that they do. No one can be justified. No one can be made righteous. No one can. And so one of the big questions of the day that Luther himself and many others are asking is that how can you know that you have a righteous standing before God? How can you possibly know? And some of the Jews of Paul's day, when he's writing Galatians, believe that by their own good works, by their efforts to keep the law, that they could accumulate a sort of righteousness, and they would have enough righteousness to be justified by God. That the way I'm going to enter the kingdom is by attaining righteousness on my own. That's what was being taught. And Paul comes along and says, no, there is nothing you can do. There are no works you can do to attain a righteousness You cannot do anything. And then Luther discovered it is not through works. It is not through participation in the Mass. It is not through confession of your sins. It is not through a treasury of merit. It is not through praying to the saints. It is not by climbing the scale of sancta and kissing every step along the way. It is not by any good works you could do. No one is justified by works. Luther's commentary on this section goes like this. He says, with Paul, we absolutely deny the possibility of self-merit. God never yet gave to any person grace and everlasting life as a reward for merit. The opinions of the papists, that is, the Pope and all those who believed what the Pope taught, the opinions of the papists are intellectual pipe dreams and idle pates that serve no other purpose but to draw men away from the true worship of God. The papacy is founded upon hallucinations. It's funny, if you ever read the Reformers, they can't go like a full page without mentioning the Papists. And sometimes they have nasty things to say about the Papists. It's because the system they lived in, they felt that the Pope was teaching such false doctrine that no one could ever come to truly understand the gospel. He's saying there's no possibility of self-merit. That was what he discovered. And that if there is possibility of self-merit, if you're in Galatians 2, you can look down to verse 21. Paul makes the case that Christ died for no reason. If you could just on your own atone for your sins through your works. The second point that Paul taught in Galatians 2 is that people are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we so we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by no works of the law can anyone be justified. People are justified by faith alone. 
In other words, here's what this means. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. Salvation is not something that you earn through your participation in the church. It is something you recognize you could never earn. And in humble desperation, you ask God for mercy. You look to Jesus Christ, and you are credited the fullness of righteousness so that you can never be declared unrighteous on Judgment Day because you own the righteousness of Christ himself. This was so world-turning. When Luther got this, it changed his whole world, and it began to spread through Europe like wildfire. Changed the world. That leads us to the confrontation, our fourth section here. He so grasped the significance that he, he was willing to fight for this truth to the death. He was willing even to stand alone to defy the Pope, the bishops, the priests, the councils, the edicts, and anyone who would come against him, he would say, Scripture is my authority, and I am following the Word of God, and I will not budge on these convictions. So what's he do? He, he starts realizing that none of the stuff I've been brought up is true. Christ has to be head of the church. It can't be the Pope. Scripture is the final authority. It's not the tradition of the church. We're saved by the merits of Christ, so why would we need any treasury of merit? If Christ's atonement is complete, why do we keep sacrificing him over and over and over again in the Mass? And here's the big one. If Christ's death for sin is a full and complete atonement, why is anyone concerned about purgatory where they're paying for their own sins for a million years? If Jesus paid it all, why do we still have to pay some? That doesn't make any sense. And so Luther begins writing books and preaching and writing tracts like a madman with his hair on fire. I mean, he's just writing. And writing, he wrote 120 books in 1520. He starts letting everyone know. He starts preaching everywhere he can. Everything he's teaching is to help people understand the true gospel. And of course, this is going to run right into the teachings of the church. And the Pope is going to find out. Of course, that's exactly what happens. In 1520... The Pope catches wind of all that Luther is now teaching. And the Pope issues a edict called a papal bull. He describes Luther like a wild boar that's ruining the Lord's vineyard, creating all sorts of division in it, because now he's teaching something contrary to what the Pope and everyone taught. And he tells Luther in that papal bull you have 60 days. Repent or be excommunicated. What did he do? Took that papal bull, brought it out in the public eye, burned it. Don't you love Luther? One historian says, it is scarcely possible for us in the 20th century to imagine the thrill that went through Germany and indeed through all of Europe when the news spread that a poor monk had burnt the Pope's bowl. It was almost like 
Someone finally stood up to the bully. Somebody's doing it. And now it begins emboldening all these other people who are starting to feel maybe Luther's right. Well, now the church has got to do something about this Luther. And they invite him to come to the Diet of Worms. Not the Diet of Worms. This is not you've got to eat worms. Uh, we don't pronounce it right in American English. But it was a gathering they invited Luther to, and he came because he did want to see the church reformed. And all his books were set out in front of him, all his hundreds of writings and all the things that he had taught. And before everyone present, he was asked to recant, take it all back, retract your teachings, and put yourself back under the authority of the church. Luther's response is the stuff of legends. He said this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, or do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils above, since it is well known that they often have erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And friends, that's where Protestantism was born. First protest against the church of Rome that was preaching a false gospel. And Luther said, I will not bow to the false doctrines. I will not bow to the false gospel. I will stand alone if necessary in defiance to these false authorities. And I will bank my eternity that I am right, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, and I can trust him and him alone. And this just set Europe on fire. Oh, you can imagine how suddenly people are going, wait a second. I can read the Bible on my own and know what God means to communicate to me? I can come directly to Jesus Christ and he will receive me? I can know that he will forgive all my sins the moment I believe because he gives me a righteousness that's not my own, but it's Christ's. And I can bank my eternity on the righteousness of Christ and I can rest my head on the pillow tonight knowing that even if I die, I will go to be with my Lord forever and I won't suffer millions of years in purgatory suffering. Yes. Yes, you can. You can know that on the authority of the word of God. Luther's life ended up being a testimony that he believed what he taught. 1546, Luther's on his deathbed. Reformation is roaring now. Others have risen up and are preaching the same doctrine, heralding the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and that you can have assurance that you are right with God because of Jesus. And as he's on his deathbed, he's surrounded by a few friends and co-laborers in the gospel. They asked him a question. I mean, I'm always moved to think about this moment in Luther's life. They, they ask him, are you ready to die trusting in your Lord Jesus Christ? 
and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in his name. It's like, this is all fun and games. You know, when you're creating a, 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 an uproar in the church, it's all fun and games when you're writing books. It's all fun and games when you're up there preaching. But you're about to face the judge right now. You're about to stand before him right now on your deathbed. Your, your eternity's on the line. Are you still willing to rest everything on what you've taught? You will defy the pope, defy the bishops, defy the priests, defy the sacraments. You will say, there is no merit in the church that I need. All I need is Christ. Are you willing to die that way and bank your eternity that you're right without hesitation? Yes. Yes. And Michael Reeves writes about this moment soon after he took his last breath said, yes, I am willing to die this way. He died. And he describes the scene like this. There was no priest present. There was no sacrament administered. There was no last confession made. Instead, there was simple confidence before God. It was all testimony how his teachings had changed everything. He was willing to die in his trust, his eternal soul. Christ alone. Not to the church, not to the pope, not to the priest, not to the bishops. Not trust his own merit that he'd accrued, but to trust Christ alone. Relevance for us this morning. Do you know you can trust Christ alone for salvation? That your baptism, that your works, that your family, that your intelligence, that your nobility, that your ritual, that your religion is nothing on Judgment Day. But if you have Christ, you have complete and full righteousness credited to your account that is unable to be blemished. That in Christ you have full and complete atonement for all your sins. That you will not pay a single penny for your sins. It's been paid for in full. You don't have to worry about a purgatory. Christ paid for it all. You can rest your eternity on Christ. If you're trusting him also, you can know right now you are saved. You can have assurance. You can have confidence. You can know I'm his. He is mine. I'm forgiven. Justified. What a beautiful thing that he stood for. Every Protestant church since has been standing for the same gospel. Friends, you can be justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. You can. By faith alone. And since your justification is by faith alone and not according to works, you can have absolute assurance based not on your own performance, but on the performance of the perfect Christ, who is your righteousness.